0: If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, I hope you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 16. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 16. And then once you get to 16, go to verse 19, and we're going to read verses 19 through 31. So 19 through the end of the chapter as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a scripture journal and you want one, they are uh, sitting right there on top of the welcome desk. Feel free to go. Out and get one now or get one after service um, but for today we'll be in Luke 16 19 through 31 if you got it say I got it all right let's uh <laughs> let's read this together Luke 16 starting verse 19 Holy Spirit says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, when the dogs came and licked his sores, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that. You, in your lifetime, received your good things. Lazarus, and like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. You are in anguish If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. This is God's word. May God write his eternal truth on all of our hearts. If you are someone who keeps their finger on the pulse of pop culture, you'll have seen that one of the biggest summer blockbusters in recent memory has come out called Oppenheimer, which is a movie about the theoretical physicist who is known as the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, well, that movie was written and directed by Christopher Nolan, who is, at, at this point, recognized as one of the greatest directors of all time. But before anyone really knew who he was, Nolan wrote and directed uh, his, only his second film called Memento, and this came out in the year 2000. Memento is about a man named Leonard Shelby, whose wife is killed in an attack where he was also injured. And as a result, Shelby developed a sort of amnesia where he was unable to remember anything new for more than five minutes, okay? And so Leonard's solution in this movie is to create an intricate system using Polaroids and tattoos. You guys remember Polaroids, by the way? Um, Which helped him keep track of information so that he could track down his wife's killer and finally get his revenge, you know? And the movie, it's been deeply analyzed since it's come out because it has a lot to say about identity and uh, truth, since the central theme of the, the premise of the movie is Leonard trying to discover who he is, right, and what happened to him. And the brilliance of the movie is that as you watch, you too begin to question and doubt Leonard's identity with him. You join him in trying to figure out who he is and what is even true. Well, in one of the more famous scenes, Teddy, who is one of Leonard's more nefarious friends, says to him, you don't know who you are anymore. Of course I do, says Leonard. I'm Leonard Shelby. I'm from San Francisco. No, says Teddy, that's who you were. Maybe it's time you started investigating yourself. And this, of course, leads to Leonard questioning his identity more than ever. One writer last year, and this movie came out in the year 2000, said this about the movie. What gives the story its potency is that Memento recognizes we all lie to ourselves. Nolan simply found a vehicle to make the lie one of the stars of the film. Leonard's not lying to himself about his success or his ego. He's lying to himself about his very identity. And his brain damage allows him to perpetuate this mythology endlessly. Like all of us, Leonard is looking to feel like his actions have meaning. The world doesn't just disappear when you close your eyes, Leonard says, but with causality broken in Leonard's mind, he has become somewhat divorced from the world. We could all be like Leonard, I think, right? Not in the sense that we all have a medical condition of amnesia, but all people are in search of identity. People can also lie about who they really are. All want truth, but only to a certain extent, especially if the truth doesn't match how they perceive reality in their terms. But for Christians, we can sometimes have amnesia with who we are, what our true identity is. And when that happens, the results can be disastrous. You may be surprised to learn that in this famous parable of Jesus, often called the rich man and Lazarus, that the themes of identity, of lying to oneself, and truth being right before our eyes are all present. And because of that, all who read or hear it are confronted with things they perhaps would rather not have to deal with or think about. Like all of Jesus' words, this parable is a searchlight. It exposes our hearts. It lays them bare as it asks us to think deeply about eternity. Now, there's a lot in this parable, isn't there? But let's consider it under just two major headings. Okay, Two major headings, two major points, and let's call them identity and eternity. Okay, Identity and eternity. So first, identity. Jesus opens by telling us there were two men who serve as the parable's main characters. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. Then there was at the rich man's gate, a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores. Now, one of the first striking things about this parable is that there are two characters, but only one of them has a proper name. There's a man who is rich, and he's just what? The rich man. But then there's a man named Lazarus, and he's not to be confused with Jesus' friends who, friend who was raised from the dead, by the way. But the striking nature of this is heightened when you realize that this is the only proper name Jesus gives in any parable. You cannot find a proper name in any other parable of Jesus. No one in any of Jesus' parables has a proper name except for here. Everyone else is the younger son, right? The father, the sower, the steward, a king a Pharisee, a tax collector, and so on, all have these descriptors or titles, but never a proper name, except for Lazarus here. Now the name Lazarus comes from the name Eleazar, and it means literally, God helps. This is important for what we're going to look at. This communicates to us that he is someone who is dependent on God. He is someone dependent on God. He is in a deplorable state. Isn't he, this Lazarus? He is very poor. He is likely crippled since we are told that he was laid at the gate. Or at the very least, he is so hungry that he has been rendered immobile. So immobile that dogs come and lick his sores and he can't fend them off. He lays at the rich man's gate and the rich man does not see him. He isn't asking for much, is he, this Lazarus? He simply wants the food that is being thrown away in the garbage of the rich man's daily feast. That's all he wants. See what it says in verse 21? He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. This means the food that those feasting would be thrown to the dogs under the table. But see, in this context, dogs weren't pets. Okay? They, they weren't looked at favorably. They were, nuanced, they were nuisances and scavengers, right? The ancients weren't doing what we moderns do, where we have dogs as pets who we give like human names to and let them sleep on our beds, right? Give them special high-quality food and put them in weird sweaters or handbags or take them to the store and all kinds of weird stuff like that. These dogs were not thought of the way we think of dogs, nor treated the way we treat them. And yet, they ate better, do you see, than Lazarus did. Lazarus longed to eat as good as those strays. The state of Lazarus, could it be more pitiable? You couldn't get more pathetic of a scene than this. You couldn't get lower than he was, and yet he is Lazarus, God is my help. What is his identity? His identity is that he is one who has God as his help. He is someone dependent on God. His identity, according to Jesus, is not the poor man. Or else, that would be his title in the parable, yes? And he wouldn't have a name. His identity is not wrapped up in his bank account, his health, or his status. His identity is, is one who is reliant on God and is loved by Him. People ignore Lazarus. They may even step over him as they go to their daily banquet. And yet, he is known by God. He matters to God. He is seen by God. And God favors him because he depends on God. This reminds us that Man's earthly condition is no index to his state in the sight of God. This is very important, isn't it? Let me repeat it. This reminds us that man's earthly condition is no index to his state in the sight of God. Many then as now saw wealth as a sign of God's favor and poverty as a sign of God's disapproval. But Jesus never says anything like that. In fact, it's often the reverse. As John Piper said, prosperity cannot be proof of God's favor since it is what the devil promises to those who worship Him. Jesus shows us here that the man who was pitiable is the man who is dependent on God and has favor from God despite his circumstances on earth. This, show, this is this shown in the long run, isn't it? How? Through his state and location in the afterlife, in eternity. Jesus does here what he often does, right? Which is flip our value system on its head. Doesn't he do that? He says, blessed things like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the persecuted. Who would call any of those things a blessing? Who? Jesus. Jesus would. Because he sees differently than we do, doesn't he? Joel Green said of this parable, the poor man's only claim to status is that he's named in the story. This alone raises the hope that there is more to this story than that of being subhuman. The wealthy man, on the other hand, has no name. Perhaps this is Jesus' way of inviting his money-loving listeners to provide their own. In contrast, what is the rich man's identity? It's that he's what? He's rich, right? He wears purple robes every day, which are a sign of wealth, right? Since purple dye was very rare. He wore fine linen, which is just a way to say that even his underwear was expensive. And he didn't just have a feast every now and then, did he? When did he have a feast? Every single day. And yet, all he is is a rich man in this life. That's his identity. And what he does, what he wears, how he sees people is informed, don't you see, by that identity. This is the truth about identity, yes, that it will drive how you live. It will drive how you see people and things and what you value. That's how important identity is. All that comes out of your identity. But see, because all he was in this life was a rich man. He was a poor man in eternity, wasn't he? Because Lazarus was someone who depended on God in this life, he was rich man in eternity. The roles were effectively reversed, do you see? But it begs the question to ask, right? What is your identity? Who do you think you are? Where is it, what is your primary identity? See, the rich man's identity was rich man. That's where he got his source of meaning in this world. Is there anything wrong with being a rich man? Is there? This isn't a setup, okay? (laughs) Of course not. Nor does it mean that you have God's favor either. See, we think rich equals good, poor equals what? Bad. The Bible never says that. The Bible never says that. We say that. The Bible doesn't. But the inverse also isn't true, is it? It isn't true that the rich are automatically damned and the poor are automatically saved. Riches and poverty are neither good nor bad in themselves. But the Bible is very clear that those who are rich are in greater spiritual danger than those who are poor. The rich man was rich, and that's who he was, but he was spiritually bankrupt. He was poor in terms of virtue. Who he was drove what he did. His identity as rich man drove him to wear lavish clothes and throw lavish parties and ignore a beggar right outside of his gate. His derived meaning in life came from who he thought he was. And that's true of all people, isn't it? What is your primary identity? It could be all kinds of things, couldn't it? what's my identity? Business person, employee, insert your job title, father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, divorced, widowed, attractive, intelligent, respected, successful, or like this man, rich person. Any of those things. Maybe you derive your primary identity through where you're from or what your race is or your political party. None of those things will do though. Not as a primary identity. The only identity that will do The only identity that will provide fullness in this life, which will lead to fullness in the next, is as one who is dependent on God. God is my help is the only identity where you will find fullness of life and meaning and purpose. Only then will you be able to relate to others properly. Only then will you see everything else about you as a means by which to glorify God. Let's illustrate it like this. Imagine your identity like a, all your identities like a deck of cards, okay? You have all these cards that are identity markers, right? Things we've mentioned. Spouse, parent, whatever your job, career is, race, where you live. Some of you have Christian in your deck, right? This is true. Jesus is in there, somewhere. Those cards are there. Your identity as a Christian is in your deck. But you see what the problem is, don't you? Jesus isn't at the top of the deck. Right? He's in the controlling center of your identity. He's in there, sure enough. If people ask you, you may say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but that identity is not your primary identity. You've buried it underneath more important identity markers to you. But Jesus must be on the top. If He is to be where you find true meaning. If He is to be the controlling center of your life. If you are to keep from getting crushed under those other lower things. There's nothing wrong with being a parent or a spouse, is there? Is there? In fact, those are good things, but they cannot bear the weight of your identity, can they? The same thing with being rich. It can't bear the weight of your identity because what happens when the stock market crashes? What happens when your house burns down? What happens when your relationships fail or your kids don't turn out like you wanted? What happens when you have relational strains or breaks? What happens when you lose your job or crow's feet start to creep up or you don't succeed like you wanted to or someone else is more respected than you or someone else has more than you or is more successful than you? then you will be crushed under the weight of your flimsy identity. Don't you see? You will feel like a failure. And those things will eat you alive. See, Lazarus was Lazarus because he depended on God. Even when things were as dismal as they could be on earth, God was still his help. He couldn't be crushed under the weight of any other identity marker because his identity was wrapped up in God. It's the only identity that can't be taken away. It's the only identity that you can't be crushed under. It's the only identity that doesn't depend on your successes or failures. For Lazarus, God is all he has, but God is all he needs. Don't you see? And isn't this why the Bible warns so much about wealth? You can't get your primary identity from Jesus, you know this? Unless you sense your need. Unless you understand in heart the truth that you are spiritually bankrupt and helpless before God, you will remain lost. Riches aren't better than poverty, and poverty isn't better than riches. But those who are used to seeing and admitting their need in this life are closer to grasping the gospel because they have no problem admitting neediness. You see, God cannot be your help unless you admit your spiritual poverty and helplessness. But if you have everything you think you need, it will be difficult to admit any kind of helplessness. The rich man was not dependent on God, was he? Was he? Because he had everything he thought he needed. And you know, the text, isn't this interesting? This is why this text is kind of scary. Because the text doesn't say that the rich man got his wealth through nefarious means, does it? There's no hint here that he is unfair in his business dealings, or that he was a swindler, or guilty of insider trading. He got his riches honestly. But he was just a rich man. That's all he was. He was dependent on no one and nothing, at least that's what he thought, because he didn't realize that God had given him his wealth and that he was given this wealth to be a blessing to others. He lived a life of selfish indulgence that led to an eternity separated from God. Our two main characters' lives on earth could not be any different, could they? And that continues into eternity. Except there's a great reversal, isn't there? Lazarus is now eternally rich, and the rich man can't even get a drop of water. The rich man is asking of Lazarus what he himself denied Lazarus. So why is the rich man in hell and Lazarus in heaven? The rich man isn't in hell because he was rich. Lazarus isn't in heaven because he was poor. Lazarus is in heaven because he trusted God in this life. The rich man is in hell because he didn't. The rich man is in hell because he was callously self-indulgent. He is condemned for his heartlessness and his self-centeredness, his inability to see the poverty and suffering that were literally right in front of him. And the drama is heightened when from hell... The rich man calls Lazarus by name. He knew his name, didn't he? He knew his name, but even in hell, he still imagined Lazarus as some kind of servant saying to Abraham, you should tell Lazarus to serve me some water or go and be resurrected on an errand to warn the rich man's brother and the rich man's brothers alone. But see, we are being shown that what we do in this life really does matter for the next. This is why identity matters, don't you see? If you see yourself primarily as someone who is loved and known and saved by Jesus, then you will live for the next life. You will treat people differently. You will hold on to what you have with a loose grip. You will be selfless and submissive to Jesus' ethic. But if your identity is wrapped up in who you can be, or what you can do, or what people could see you do and be impressed by, well, your ethic will flow from that. So what? So you'll be selfish, and you'll be living a short-sighted life, where all you are is living for this world alone. So of course, we will be like the rich man with our stuff. Don't you see? Don't you see that your identity, if your identity is wrapped up in this life alone, you will be someone who has to have the nicest car when something not as lavish will do just fine. You'll need to have the clothes that will impress, the house that will impress, the tidy and busy kids that will impress, the new toys for your hobbies, the newest this, and the nicest that. And why? Why? Because you need them? No, of course not. Because your identity is located in the wrong place. For the rich man, as Gregory of Nicaea said, his indulgence strangled mercy. And isn't that often the case? I'm going to say something absolutely no one will like, okay? And you're like, I haven't liked a thing you said so far. I'm going to say something (laughs) no one will like and no one will want to agree with, okay? God did not give you what he did so that you could use it up on yourself self-indulgence is not a christian virtue. Jesus never encourages us to use up what we he has given us primarily on our own comfort. God has not given us what we have so that we could live lives indistinguishable from our unbelieving neighbors. You say I don't like that. You say I don't agree with that. And I say prove me wrong. It's in your Bibles, isn't it? I didn't sneak into y'all's house last night and put in this parable, right? The burden of proof, is not on me. It's on the one who would believe that God has no problem with self-indulgence when there are poor people at your gate. Again, wealth isn't bad, nor is it good. It just is. But when God blesses us with more than we need, which is like, I don't know, all of us in this room, and we miss the reason why, why he did that, then we could be in spiritual danger. Church Father Clement had what I think is a helpful illustration on this. He compared wealth to a musical instrument. If you don't know how to play an instrument, if you try to play it, it will be assaulting to everyone's ears, right? Like everyone has probably seen and heard a child banging on a keyboard or piano or on a drum kit, right? It's awful. It's awful. But if you possess the skill to play an instrument, you will produce wondrous melodies and harmonies. Clement said, Wealth is an instrument of this kind. If you are able to make right use of it, then it will serve justice. If it is wrongly used, then it will serve injustice, for its nature is to serve, not to rule. So what is to be destroyed is not one's possessions, but the passions of the soul, which hinder the right use of one's property. By thus becoming virtuous and good, a man will be able to make good use of his riches. Do you see? The condemnation does not come from simply having stuff, nor even having nice stuff. It isn't that one is damned, because of the size of one's bank account. It isn't even about never doing anything for yourself you enjoy. That's not the point at all. The point is, as another church father, Chrysostom asked, has God provided us with what we have in order for us to facilitate lives of self-indulgence that is blind to the needs of others? Craig Blomberg said in his book on the parables, this word that made me uncomfortable, so I just wanted to invite you guys into my misery, okay? He said, the countless professing Christians today who give little or nothing to help the desperately poor and sick of our world while spending huge amounts of money on recreation, entertainment, shopping, sports, eating out, cars, and homes with far more than they could ever need or use form a frightening parallel to the rich man. The number of supposedly Bible-believing churches that spend equally profane percentages of their annual budgets on facilities, staff salaries, building projects, and programs merely to service those already saved while giving pathetically small amounts to physically or spiritually needy abroad or at home may be even more scandalous. We can go a long way towards righting these inequities without risking rich and poor trading roles. See, Jesus isn't telling us all to rush out of here today and sell everything we have and give it to the poor. You know, maybe he's telling you that. Maybe he is, but like Joel Green suggested, calling for us to put our name in the place of the rich man so that we could self reflect. See, Lazarus was dependent on God. Are you? Sometimes dependency looks like doing what you know Jesus is calling you to do, also known as faithfulness, even though it's risky because you trust that God has you in this life, but especially in the next. And having an identity that is wrapped up in who Jesus says you are as son or daughter of God who has been redeemed by his blood, means not deriving your identity from what you can be or do nor what people think of you. And that's freeing. Because much of what we do, like the Pharisees in verse 15, we do so other people could see and be impressed. But if we are dependent on God and we care more about what he thinks than what mere sinful fallen mortals do, we can avoid being like the rich man. The trouble with the rich man wasn't only that he was self-indulgent and selfish and insensitive, nor even that he didn't see Lazarus. The trouble with the rich man was that he was living for this life only. He had no thought of the one to come. And if he didn't think of the world to come, he thought only that his riches in this life would translate to riches in the next. And that brings us to our second main point, point two, eternity. Both men die, we're told, and are taken to their respective eternal dwellings. Lazarus to what's called Abraham's bosom, which is the place of the righteous, and the rich man to Hades, which is the place of the unrighteous. Now, the purpose of this parable, I have to tell you, isn't for us to get all of our theology of the afterlife from it. Okay, Apart from simply being told that people are eternal, That life after death is a state of consciousness, regardless of where you go, and that once you are in your eternal dwelling, there is no reverse possible. We're not meant to think angels take the righteous to heaven, okay, or that people in heaven and hell can see each other and, like, converse. Parables, by their nature, are stories created in order to communicate a point, right? Jesus is merely illustrating for us in vivid clarity a picture that is supposed to be graphic and poignant. The stress here is a radical reversal of circumstances. The fate of both men in the afterlife is the exact opposite of what they experienced on earth. The rich man had already received in full all the good things he would ever get. You see what verse 25 says? Abraham tells him, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in man like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Daryl Bach says the rich man is not condemned because he is rich, but because he has slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. He became consumed with his own joy, leisure, and celebration and failed to respond to the suffering and need of others around him. His callousness made his earthly riches all that he would ever receive from life. Well, Lazarus was, in the old life, the rich man had become. What Lazarus lacked, the rich man now lacks. What the rich man did not provide Lazarus then, Lazarus cannot provide now. The rich man proves here the old adage of you cannot take it with you is true, doesn't he? His being rich in this life meant what for his eternity? Nothing. For his eternity, except for his riches becoming that which condemned him. He couldn't now say, I didn't have enough to help, nor I didn't see Lazarus there, nor even I didn't know I was supposed to care for the poor. Since as Abraham tells him in verse 29, you had the law and prophets. You had everything you needed to know what what to do right. Now you'd be surprised to hear that this reminded me of a scene from Pilgrim's Progress, won't you? When Christian, the main character, is at the interpreter's house, and interpreter is the Holy Spirit in the Pilgrim's Progress. He's taken to a room, and there were two children sitting each on their own chairs. Okay. And one of the child's name was Passion, and the other one Patience. Okay. Passion was clearly very discontented. He was restless, pacing, squirming, frowning, huffing, and puffing, right? Like he was a Baptist at a business meeting. The patient's, on the other hand, is sitting with his feet straight in front of him, neatly squared up in the middle of the chair, hands folded in his lap in a way all parents wish their children would sit, but probably never have, right? So Christian inquired to the interpreter, why is passion so restless? And the interpreter said that the boys were told that they had to wait for the best things. The best things were coming to them, that was a promise, but they wouldn't get them until early the next year. So this upset Passion because he was impatient, but Patience chose to simply wait content for the good things. Just then, someone entered the room, walked straight up to Passion, and poured a bag of treasure at his feet. He scooped it up, he rejoiced, he laughed with scorn at Patience, mocking him, but a short time later, all the treasure was gone. Squandered by Passion, and he was left with nothing but rags. Naturally, Christian asked the interpreter, what does this all mean? And the interpreter explained that passion represented the men of this world. They must have the good things now. They can't wait till the next world for the good things. But, says the interpreter, as you can see how quickly it is wasted away. And now he was left with nothing but rags. And then he added this. It is the glory of the next world that will never wear out, while the good things of this world will vanish. Like passion, the rich man spent all of his good things in this life alone. That's all he was living for. And the way he lived, the way he treated Lazarus was evidence of his short-sightedness. Lazarus, on the other hand, had no good things in this world. But he had God. And that's why he was comforted in the life to come. Nothing is the... you notice? Nothing is the rich man's fault, is it? According to him, what was lacking in this life was adequate warnings and instructions. See what he says in verses 27 to 31? He wants Abraham to resurrect Lazarus so Lazarus can warn his brothers to stop acting like he did so they can avoid hell. He's saying there isn't enough evidence. There wasn't enough warnings of how one should treat the poor or or that what they did in this life affected the one to come. What does Abraham say to all that? He tells them, you have the law and prophets. Your brothers have the law and prophets. So you and they have and had and have all you need in order to repent and live accordingly. Abraham is saying that scriptures are enough to bring one to knowledge of salvation and of how to live in light of that redemption. The Old Testament is absolutely saturated with calls to how to treat the poor and marginalized. The Old Testament is absolutely saturated with texts that tell us how sinful we are and how needy we are of a rescuing grace of God. Abraham says a miracle won't make a difference. People don't need signs. People need the Word of God, which God has graciously provided. Now, people now are just like the rich man. They want God to show them a sign. They want Jesus like, to show up on their toast or a message in their alphabet soup or some sign from the sky. They said, if God would just give me a sign, I'd believe. If God just gives me a sign, I'll obey. A lack of a sign, though, isn't what stops people from obeying or believing. It's their will. God has provided us with all that we need. And it's called the Bible. We simply need to take up and read. And believe that it is a revelation from God as a gift. The problem is... We don't take up and read our Bibles because they're sitting on our shelves collecting dust. And then we're like, God, give me a sign. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. If you take up and read, you'd know what you're supposed to do. Abraham is saying, in essence, God's revelation of his will and his call to love others should be enough. But ultimately, the message has to be heeded your brothers won't repent simply because they were given evidence. What is needed is a heart that responds to God and does not seek heavenly signs. I, I love this from 19th century Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren said, The fault lies not in the deficiency of the warnings, but, the invert, but in the aversion of the will. No matter whether it is Moses or a spirit from Hades who speaks, if men do not wish to hear, they will not hear. They will not be persuaded, for persuasion has as much or more to do with the heart inclination than with the head. We have as much witness from heaven as we need. The worst man knows more of duty than the best man does. The rich man is in torments because he lived for self, and he lived for self not because he did not know that it was wrong, but because he did not choose to do what he knew was right. Once again, we see Jesus holding the Scriptures up, don't we? Because in dismissing them, in dismissing the Scriptures, the rich man is also dismissing the Gospel. Because Jesus and the Gospel and Scriptures are linked. To reject the message of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is to reject Jesus. For the Bible's central figure is Jesus from beginning to end. The Bible tells us what our main problem is, doesn't it? It tells us that what's wrong with us is not out there, is it? Where is it? It's in our very own hearts. It tells us that we have a hole in our hearts that we try to fill with all manners of idols, riches, possessions, status, relationships, respect, jobs, other people, all these flimsy identities, and that's why we're empty. The Bible tells us that. It tells us that because of our sin, we have been separated from God. It tells us that we are rebels and deserve what this rich man gets, which is eternal separation from God. In fact, it tells us that hell is not only the fitting location of all people, but that hell is what we desire apart from a move from God. Ah, see... Modern people, don't they? Picture hell as like this pit that God just arbitrarily tosses people into and he's laughing maniacally, right? He steps on their fingers as they're trying to get out, right? But the Bible tells us that hell is not only the just desserts for our rebellion against the holy God, but the result of our own desire to be given over to our desires and to be left alone by God. That's what hell is. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. We reject God. He grants our wish. Do you see? He leaves us alone. He allows us to remain as we are on the trajectory that we have freely chosen. We say in this life, like the rich man, all I need is me and my idols and not God. God gives us over to that. And if we die still with that posture, he gives us what we said in this life we wanted, which is not him. Even, did you ever notice that even the rich man in this story, who refuses to take responsibility for his destiny, never asks to leave? hell, does He? Does He? He just wants some water. He just wants Lazarus to act as a servant, give him some water, warn his brothers. No attempts to get out. No pleas or argument for his transfer from hell to heaven. Jesus says that the Bible is sufficient source to tell us that not only that it, hell is the just deserts of our deeds, but it tells us our only way of escape is through a gracious God who condescends to rescue those en route to a godless eternity at the cost of his own blood. Do you see why hell is hell? Do you see it? Abraham tells the rich man There's an incredible gulf between us. Doesn't he say that? Hell is hell because it's separation. Hell is hell because it is Christless. Hell is bad because Jesus is not there. Heaven is good because he is. Do you see? This is why Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. But see, unless the separation that is between us and God is mended in this life, we'll forever be separated from him. There will remain, verse 26, a great chasm between us that no one can cross. This is the worst prospect of all. The worst thing that can ever happen to us is banishment. Separation from our Creator. That's the worst thing that can happen to us. Whatever the worst thing you think can happen to you is, it pales in comparison to being separated from the God who loves you, whom you, you were made to know and love in return. Now, if you're thinking separation from God is the worst thing that can happen, that doesn't sound so bad. That's because you've never known what it's like to be known by Him. Until you know communion you won't know the pain of separation or banishment. Don't you see? You guys remember the 2000s? Here's another 2000 film. What a good year for movies, huh? The Patriot. Remember there's a scene where Mel Gibson's character is leaving. He's going back to war after a time with his family, and one of his daughters won't speak to him. The whole time he's there, he keeps asking her, just talk, just say one word, she won't say anything. He says goodbye, and he says, just one word, that's all I want, but she won't speak. Then he reaches to hug her, she backs away, and he gets on his horse, he starts to ride away, she runs after him, and she's finally speaking, she says, Papa, don't go, I'll say anything, whatever you want me to say, I'll say anything, please don't go. Now, I'll tell you, there isn't a dad in the world who could watch that and not get emotional, not a one, okay, unless you're an absolute robot. I don't care how tough you think you are, okay? If you're a father, you're shedding some tears, right? Something is going on in your heart watching that. Why? Because you know what it's like to have a relationship with your child. So the, one of the worst things you can imagine is to not have that. Until you know communion, you won't know the pain of separation or banishment. See, hell, this great chasm. This might shock you what I'm about to say. It reminds us how much we're loved. Hell reminds us how much we're loved. Does that sound strange? How does it remind us of that? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? It's because when he was absorbing the wrath of God that was due you and me, he experienced this chasm. The separation from the Father. In a word, Jesus went through hell for you. He literally experienced hell for you and me. Having known only intimate relationship and fellowship with the Father from eternity's past, He now experienced the worst prospect possible, a break of fellowship, even though He had not one sin in Himself to be punished for. He took on hell so that you would not. That is, if you would give him your allegiance. If you would make him your help. He took on separation from God so that you'd never have to experience that again. We hear all that we've said today and we sweat because we can't stand to think of the prospect of parting with our self-indulgence or that we could be wasting our wealth on lavish stuff for ourselves. Who wants to give up anything? Who wants to do that? I mean, really. Who wants to give up possessions of lifestyle or withhold the choices of things for ourselves? No one wants to do that, but Jesus did. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Even though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Though he deserved only good things, he took hell for you and for me. My message today is not go give away all your junk so that you won't go to hell when you die. My message today is gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and see how he loves your rebellious self. Enough to go through hell for you even though he deserved none of it and we deserve all of it Then see if you could leave today and go live for yourself See if you could hear the truth Of the love of god for you and remain unchanged See if you could hear How God sees you in your spiritual poverty then look at people in physical or spiritual poverty with callousness. The parable ends with an open ending because it's leaving us all with a choice. The rich man wants Lazarus to go warn his brothers so they can repent, but they have what they need to see the truth of the gospel and repent in the scriptures, and so do we will we repent? To be sure, there is no one here who has nothing to repent of. All of us have reason to go to Jesus just now. Whether for our demanding a sign before we believe or obey or for living lavishly for ourselves or for being callous in heart towards the poor or for having more than we need but ignoring Lazarus at our gate or for deriving our identity from anything that isn't Jesus. All of us have something to repent for. There's still time. Will you go to him?